you like conversation on a variety of topics? Feel like no one wants to talk about the things that interest you? Tired of only hearing the same political, sports, or catastrophe talk? Yeah, we feel that way too. Join two high-functioning geeks as they discuss just about anything under the sun. We can't tell you what we'll be talking about each week because we don't know where our brains will take us. It will be an interesting conversation, though, so hang on and join us. Here comes the Relentless Geekery. How you doing, Al? Very good. It's actually very weird to take a week off. You know what I mean? We are usually just bristling with things to talk about, and like two weeks is now too much. There's <laughs> of stuff. It was. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, good week off. And it, it worked well because I, I had so many things I was trying to do last week. So it, it. it worked well for me. So how was uh, your trip, your vacation? It was really wonderful. You know, we just did a, a little getaway for five days. We went to the western part of New York State. So up to Rochester uh, and down to Ithaca, right in the Finger Lakes area and stuff like that. And did we really have had good uh, times on vacations where we combine it with uh, a certain amount of civilization, a certain amount of nature. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Just kind of be on our own schedule. Um, that's a real key thing. You know, we, we are both so constrained often with obligations schedule that we've taken on that it's really nice to just wake up and say, what do we want to do as opposed to what can we fit in amongst obligations that we've already made? Right. So, yeah. uh, but had, uh, and we can talk about, you know, I, highlights were things like we went to the Strong Museum of Play up in Rochester, which, you know, very much, it, it would relent this geekery wise, such a wonderful place. It had the whole history of toys and games and dolls and puzzles and that kind of stuff and in various different sections. So, was it a, a museum you viewed and read little things or was it interactive? Um, it was both of those things, nice. lots of display models, you know, like especially older games where they kind of like, if you touch them, they might crumble, you know, a game from the turn of the century that is the 1900 turn of the century as opposed to right. 2000. Um, they, they, they seem to be very well preserved, but just that, uh, those so much not to play with. But yes, in terms of they had a whole video game arcade, a whole pinball arcade, um, all kinds of uh, like hands-on things for the kids, a whole section and of big kids and big kids. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, so my, my biggest problem in that section wasn't so much, um, can I play with the whack-a-moles and the things? It's more like, can I crawl through this little opening to get to the magic slide <laughs> that goes down to the next thing? We you have know? a man stuck in aisle seven. <laughs> exactly that, you know, bring, bring the fire hose, bring the de-wedging tools, right. whatever else it might be. See, now, immediately my brain popped to you talking about these old toys and my grandparents had some old toys and games and my father had some when I was younger and there might be a few roaming around. And this is another area that modern technology could really help this stuff because think about it, VR goggles, you could see uh, the, get the toys, the board games and, and, you know, spin them around. You can't physically touch them, but see them. But what about 3d printing? I mean, you could get the specs for those old whatever and recreate virtually everything. Exactly. Yeah. It's, you know, it, they are right. And some of that had occurred to me, like, you know, that any game that's out there could be recreated. And especially if it's not a matter of, well, we have to sell at least 10,000 copies to make it worthwhile. No, put the spec out there. I'm not sure exactly, you know, copyright isn't so much apply as trademark and various other intellectual property protections, but there have to be, Companies, they, they know they're not going to make any more money off of this. Why not put it in the public domain? And, you know, it, it, 
there are some things that are still ongoing. You know, Scrabble doesn't want to do that. Monopoly doesn't want to do that. They're still selling. But you and I must have played games in the in our youth. Like I played a game called Careers that I used to really like, but I think that's long out of print, out of manufacture. Yeah. You know what I mean? So right, um, ring a bell. yeah, and 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 especially for for not only 3D printing of little meeples and stuff like that, but all the cards, all the different kinds of monies, they're somebody has to have kept that in the records and it'd be really cool if they're announced i haven't even looked there might be a wonderful archive you know what i mean the the cabin of lost games or something like that that's a great name i'll go get that domain right now (laughs) see exactly and and where people could do that especially i'm not sure about this it doesn't even have to be necessarily the original manufacturer anybody can do scans of their existing copy and you know what i mean Um, you would think because there are certain uh things in the copyright for education that if right. it's you know for an education purpose you have a little more leeway at certain things but you can't sell it you can't there's still things you can't do but, you know right. I, I i wonder if there's some certain things for you know artifact uh, museum type something that they could you know recreate it to show in the museum or how hard would it really be just to get the permissions i mean you know that's right though. what you would know. it really hurt a Heck, Parker Brothers, you know, showing 50 years of Scrabble, Scrabble ev- evolution would probably be beneficial. Yeah. Uh, quick <laughs> aside, I'm going and then we'll jump back. Uh, I saw a meme that said, uh, hey, look, I just, it showed a Scrabble, all the pieces spilled out. It said, hey, look, I just bought a book from Ikea. <laughs> Very good. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Go on. <laughs> it's it, uh, one of the things is like a lot of games when they were created in the first place to help kids move into teenagehood and adulthood. You know what I mean? They weren't like uh, just that. Something like life isn't only spin the spinner. It's like, well, you make some choices as to whether you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, a professional, a craftsman, that kind of stuff. And there's different rewards and different lucky accidents. And having kids gives you both benefits and obligations and stuff like that. So it, 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 the reason, like you were saying, if there's a, an education exemption, and often when I do my talks, I kind of have that massive disclaimer at the end that says, of course, I don't own any of these copyrights, but it's being presented for educational entertainment purposes. So, you know, please don't sue me. I, I want to talk about Spider-Man because there's things to be learned from Spider-Man that have nothing to do with my laying claim to him. You know, that kind yeah, of thing. <laughs> I, I think people are a little too touchy at times on that. Sometimes, yeah. But, but I mean, I understand you know, there ha- there's a lot going on with that publishing people stealing books and stuff. Yeah. But, uh, so. and I, I, most of the time I come up on the side of, I want intellectual property to be protected. You know what I mean? Like for instance, I don't know, there's all kinds of card games and they're all many, some of them seem to be, wow, that's just like this other card game with a couple of words changed. And sometimes like the cards against humanity, people were really wonderful about, they didn't mind there being crabs adjust humidity and all the other sets that are meant to, of course, evoke the rhythm of the name and they went with the network effect you know one of the things you get when you are in a place of easy duplication is you aren't so much worried about scarcity of the physical thing you're worried about its presence in the population and so the more that people become aware that a game called cards against humanity exists all the knockoffs actually build your brand they don't detract from your sales or there's got to be some nice little economics curve that says where you're saturated versus how much you're selling and that you want to keep climbing that curve until you have such market penetration that everybody in the world knows about you. And then you have to worry about the the knockoffs that are doing nothing but trying to steal your sales instead of building the universe of it. Yeah. So, it's you know, <laughs> so what, I, what was the coolest game or toy you, you saw in there? Well, boy, um, 
all kinds of things that I, until you see it, you don't remember it from your youth. Um, things like when they used to have not only erector sets and Lincoln logs, but all the variations on that, and, and not just Lego. Lego is probably the best known one. You know, it's the ultimate, you can do anything with it game. And I grew up with, it wasn't you buy a set, and that set of things is supposed to be, here's the Lego hotel, here's the Lego pirate ship. Right. It was you bought boxes of raw Legos of various different sizes and pieces. Maybe we've talked about this a little bit before. You know, it was flats, it was slopes, but but we used to get a big care package from Germany every year for Christmas, and the, the bounty of getting multiple different colors and just kind of adding to the collection that now I can build a bigger skyscraper, but it's still however I want to design it. It's not make it look like Buckingham Palace or right. something like that. Right. And uh, so... Uh, or at had, least it, it's Buckingham Palace, but from scratch, you did it from your brain instead of, but piece seven here and, you know... Yes, exactly. And, and the closer that you come, it's kind of like, wow, I made... I took liberties with what it really looks like but i kind of like my version better <laughs> you yeah. know what i mean it's, right. uh, um, and, and we could probably go off on a really long rant with that about how kids are different and their thinking's different when you hand them a lego set with instructions and then they build that one thing and put it on a shelf and leave it as opposed to here's a million lego see what you can build with it and the creativity it sparks exactly uh, you know, I, I, I really think there is something to that you know that when you're just given a blank slate and you're trying to create kind of like analogs to the real world. It's very different than following instructions. You know what yeah. I mean? If anything, they, they had all kinds of good stuff about play, about how important play is that it's a way that someone can take a little bit step forward from where they are, uh, take a little bit of risk, but there it's not immediate penalty. There's not, you know what I mean? So, so all the different construction things, like they had plasticant, they had all the different variations that were smaller sets of, it's kind of like Lincoln Logs, but not. And besides Lego, there was Duplo or whatever else yeah, it might yeah, be. Yeah, the, the little um, kid's version. Just walking through the Toy Hall of Fame was all kinds of, yes, everybody must have had Monopoly, Slinky. Um, you know, they, And actually, if I remember right, Stick. A stick was in the Toy Hall of Fame because one of the first things you do as a kid is pick it up, poke the earth, you know, cut a, cut the head off of a weed. You know what yeah. I mean? Now it's a sword. Yeah. Now it's a yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so and, that was and, and there was right along with that discussion. You got the the kids, you know, 60s, 70s, go outside and play, and then you know, midnight. Hey, you guys better come in and go to bed. Right when the lights two, came on. That, yeah. That's how it was. You know, two thousand. <laughs> Hey kids, go out and play. What do we do? There's nothing to do out there. You know, it's that it's a big difference. And, right. and this is near and dear to my heart. It's one of the things that I've been, you know, working. Yeah. With. And they they had, as you might imagine, all the the various different generations of video games and stuff like that. So again, kind of interesting. You don't you I, I have seen all of them at one time or another, but you don't remember like before there was Nintendo or Sega, there really was Odyssey. There was, you know, uh, Magnavox had one that's hooked up only to their TVs and, and things like that. And so it to see all those various different generations and attempts and that which was the one that finally had that right combination of it's cool, but easy to set up and has lots of games, but has, you know, the controllers. They don't, they don't like get you free over here. And then the controllers cost too much money and the controller breaks too easy. So parents hate that. Um it was very cool to see all the various different uh, offshoots, if you will. And usually the ones that became the Skillion sellers were kind of like the VHS compared to the Betamax. They were kind of more indestructible. They had more titles. 
they had a big thing about, you know, sometimes you don't need a lot of titles. You need the one flagship title. So everybody wants to play Donkey Kong and then Super Mario Brothers. But then, and who's going to be able to match that? Well, they did with Crash Bandicoot. They found a, a, a recognizable and the gameplay was good and everything. And so to, to see, they had lots of nice insights into the background of the people who did these things. They don't just spontaneously appear. Oftentimes there's a particular guy that created a Tetris that created, you know what I mean? Like that. And here's the one from one, multiple from Japan, multiple from Russia, multiple from the United States that the people that had that insight to at Mattel or uh, Kenner, you know, now some of these names have faded or been acquired, so they're not around anymore, but somebody had to say, um, Barbie and then Barbie plus her playmates, Ken, and, uh, you know, and then all the different kinds of Barbies, they had a whole case with, you know, gladiator barbie and nurse barbie and whatever else it right. might be. and the fact that someone had that ability to keep thinking of variations that might be cool they started to have all the various different skin tones so that everybody could find a barbie that was like them or various different dolls you know it, the, uh, <laughs> the, the, did you uh that might mention that audiobook console wars about yes. sega the the guy that saved sega before it got killed uh kalinsky he came from a reviving Barbie and GI Joe. That's where he came from. Yeah. In fact, my watching that series of things was really good prep for going to the strong museum. Then I could actually, you know, read the thing and say, yeah, I just read about that. I'd I'd say to Colleen, you know, part of not only this card, but here's a little bit more about those situations and stuff like that. You know, that they had, they actually had the tournaments and they had, you know, the 14 year old boy was the best in the world at it, it was, I could add a little bit to the stories. Um, they had, like I said, I, they had tokens, you know, four for a dollar. So, of course, I had to play a little bit of pinball and a little bit you of know, cards. And the video arcades were nowhere near uh, comprehensive enough. You know, I mean, I've played a hundred different games. When I go to the Replay FX in Pittsburgh, one of the joys is just I, I, I always played, like many others did, Space Invaders and, and Pac-Man and Missile Command. But I liked some of the more obscure ones, like make tracks or, you know, Berserk became frenzy and and that kind of stuff. And um, it was, that's, I, as opposed to the person that, okay, hon, I'm going to play Pac-Man. I know how to do all 26 levels or whatever. Come back in an hour. I didn't do any of that. I didn't feel the need to to show off, if you will. It was just nice to know that there's still a cabinet, an operating, like, really nice, the knob feels just right cabinet that someone has preserved it. And I know that there's not only this place, but there's museums and arcades out there now that they've got those people that are really good at understanding how it all works, keeping it clean, you know, keep the gunk out and stuff like that. How cool that something from when I went away to college in 77, there's still a version of that game still out there for for someone to play. And I think that a lot of the gameplay is still really good, that it's not just, you know, people are now spoiled by various different games they found really good combinations of the skill you needed and the ability to master the controller and just the gameplay itself of how you move up to various different levels and get rewards. Already then they knew how to make it addictive. And that hasn't changed because you get better level gra- <laughs> graphics. We've kind of talked about that. Sometimes much more refined game is still really satisfying, even if they only look like li- little different blobs on Space Invaders or something like that. You know, it was fun. It was a ton of fun. <laughs> um, it uh, we went to the oldest mini golf course in the United States, yes. operating since 1930. Isn't now, that did cool? they still have the same original set pieces? That, so far as I could tell, yes. 
they seem to have refurbished it and kept it working and current, but they didn't demolish it and say, oh, we're tired of old 30s uh, Mount Rushmore type stuff. Now we have spaceships. No, it really, they seem to have maintained all that. Um, the I, I don't know. It seemed old timey while still being very ma well maintained. And man, was it tough. You know what I mean? Compared to a putt-putt course where it really is, there's lots of levels and slight um, slopes and stuff like that. We, there, uh, almost every hole was at an angle on a little volcano where like when you shoot it, if you, if you don't make it right in, it doesn't just like dribble to the side and now you have an easier putt. It rejects you and sends you away two or three feet. So you have another tough putt for, from a different angle. So we, we, we tied perfect for our anniversary. You know, yay, we're, um, but we tied at 65. I'm usually in the 40s, you know, on a 36-hole course, par twos and that kind of stuff. I'm usually twos and threes, occasionally a hole in one and occasionally a six where I just can't seem to master it. But, man, I can't tell you how many times I five-putted that got close to the hole and then played this off again, over again, back again, rim the cup. It was hilarious after a while to be like, we play a lot and we're okay at this. We're pretty good. But man, this course is unforgiving. It's beautiful, but man, is it a devil of a course. Nice. Well, that's so fun. We, I don't know, that's something Colleen and I still love doing. It's a great equalizer, not only between her and I, but between all kinds of friends. You know, even if you're a mighty putter on a real golf course, that doesn't mean you've mastered the windmill of doom. That doesn't mean that you've got the timing and the angles and the weird little perturbations in the, the, the golf surface itself. Even if you bring your turbocharged, water-cooled putter there, it doesn't mean you're going to just clear the field. So I, I love it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I wouldn't want to bring a new water-cooled turbo putter to the <laughs> oldest golf course around. I, I would need to get my old wooden one and you know, put, a, put right. on a bowler cap. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, I say, Valley Whale, good right. shot, old Jew. <laughs> <Yeah>. you <know? laughs> Ask Colleen to carry your club between the... <laughs> I actually, I have a friend that got me a putter because we played so much mini golf with like an orange handle, an orange, you know, uh, wrap on the, on the handle and stuff like that. And it, I, when I remember to bring it for a long time, I was just keeping it in the trunk of my car all the time. And then for some reason I took it out and now it's like behind the front door, I guess in case someone comes to the door and I need to like beat him off with my mighty putter. Or yeah. I would imagine a lot of the ones at the courses are probably too small for you. You probably feel like you're holding little matchsticks. I got to tell you, it, we, Colleen and I laugh about that all the time. We are, as you know, rodents of unusual size, to quote Princess Bride. And usually she has to get like the kids club in order to get a, a, a nice thing. And sometimes just that. I, at the end of the course, I have to go and kind of unkink the back because I've been playing hunchback the whole course because it's just not tall enough for six foot three Al to get an easy swing each time. And yet it's worth it. <laughs> That's, That's cool. So, and, and, and then again, in brief, we, then from there, we went down to Ithaca, which is where Cornell university is. And I love college campuses. Ivy league's cool. It, it college campuses themselves. There's such energy. There's such wonderful youth and optimism and newness to the kids wandering around. And the, the, the buildings are beautiful. So many of them are done from like native stone built into this, this, you know, church of learning, this, this beautiful edifice. So, we walked all over the place. Uh, Chapel Hill is interesting. Sorry, Chapel Hill. Cornell is interesting because it's built on gorges. It's not at all a flat surface like University of Illinois is. So we parked our car and then we we're like, we're like four blocks up. We have to go up to get to the campus. Wow. And 
because we were we climbed to waterfalls it, it, because they have so many gorges they have lots of beautiful hikes to go on waterfalls to see and we did that as well like i said the combination of nature and um and and civilization but i just it's very fun then to go to the campus town and what do they have in campus town geeky things for me here's the music store here's the bookstore here's the game store you know that kind of thing so we we played student for a while we and i don't know we kept our masks on it's very it's very safe there they have big signs of here's where the covid testing centers are to make sure that you know you know, be be safe. Don't be a menace to other people. Get regularly tested. If you have any kind of symptoms, don't go to class. So very for college being reopened, and I think there's like twenty thousand students there, maybe more. They seem to have found a way to have everybody in very conscious of don't don't be a menace. You know, what what I mean? different uh, experience yeah. than what we had. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like I don't know. They had a a very cool thing. We we happened to stumble onto it. Uh, they have a quad, and on the quad there was a whole bunch of booths that for all the various different service organizations. U of I had a similar thing called Quad Day, where all the different campus organizations would recruit for members. So that's how I found Star Course. You know, when I was at, at U of I, I was in the the student run organization that put on concerts. So that's how I got to be be backstage and meet all my heroes and be backstage manager. So then I had really direct contact with them. And eventually I was senior manager. So I helped actually book shows. And so it's kind of it from that small thing. I was all in a thing called a group gasp, the group against smokers pollution. So we were one of the first groups that was trying to say, how about if we don't have inside smoking? And, and honestly, 77, that was nowhere near the, the, the cause that it is today. So just having said that, very cool to see that part of what you go away to for school to is to expand your consciousness that these are perhaps causes worth you know supporting and it, and it, it was from what we could see of the signs it was all the things you might imagine it was how about some gun control and how about some um uh, uh awareness of ladies are people too and you know what i mean all all those kinds of things so I, I like seeing that evidence that it's not only I'm going to get my grades, I'm going to get my job, and I'm going to master the world, that already you're building that your your contribution to the world will not only be can you get a house with a white picket fence, it's can you can you immerse yourself in the world enough to know that immigrants are having problems. And <laughs> you know what I mean? We need to worry about... When Sarah hey, was looking at Kent State, uh, we mm-hmm. went uh, and saw, you know, went to the, the preliminary stuff took a tour and they're showing us they got this they got this and i'm like oh my god i want to go back to school i like this the stuff uh, you know yeah you still got the learning obviously but all the other stuff is so cool nowadays they have so many groups and activities and uh, just always something cool to do and uh, the food even you know they can actually go downtown kent to almost any of the restaurants use their flash card so way different way different it's, I, I, I used to love, I mean, I, U of I was 35,000 students or something like that. And so it could be very easy to get lost amongst that enormous crowd. But I found it fascinating to be able to say, I can hit the computer lab. I can hit the library. I can hit the union where I can play pinball or video games or shoot some pool. I, there's every weekend, there's a dozen different movies being offered by various different student organizations. I just, I was never bored. And it kind of like, kind of like the world in general. Man, if you're bored, it's not the world. It's your own doing. There is so much stuff to be found. If you just like, you know, open up your daily newspaper and turn to those back pages and see, here's the comedy, here's the concerts, here's the, there's things to do. Yeah. I I had a wonderful time in college. I really did all that learning besides education. You know, I got my, my four point and I got good grades and stuff like that, but I didn't do only that. I kind of, 
made a big decision in sophomore year to say, I'm really getting great grades, but I'm kind of being a drudge about it. I, I, I kind of want to be a full human being and the U of I offers that opportunity. So my grades didn't, my grades did indeed drop down a bit because you don't get all A's, you get B's if you decide that you're where you're going to spend some time. Is it Star Course? You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh... <laughs> and, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, looking back, we're 30, 40 years out. Uh, did, did, you know, in your life, when did it really matter that you had a 3.2 instead of a 4.0? You know, some of the kids get so uptight ulcers and headaches and I got to have a 4.0. Seriously, people go, oh, you graduated from there, and that's as far as it usually went in any interview, that you could have got C's. And I've said that. I'm like, your doctor has his diploma on the wall, but was he an A student or a C student? They both pass. You know (laughs) know what you call the uh, the, the guy with the lowest grade point? Doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Doctor, exactly. You know, it's just, I am very happy that some of the big life lessons that I learned were early in college when it didn't matter. The first time that I was really betrayed by somebody, blindsidedly betrayed, where it's like, I did not know that they had another agenda going on here and that because now we diverge, I'm going to get ground up. I did not know that money matters, emotions matter, alliances are formed without you being part of it, kind of an early version of Survivor. It, I just, so many things that I I found out to my detriment thank god it happened when i was just a pup yeah. in college instead of being and and it did happen later in life i've had my share of you know business crap and stuff like that but that early awareness of okay so what's really going on here this seems too good to be true and so it probably is yeah. investigate a little further don't just take things on face value and i don't think it made me hyper suspicious because i wasn't betrayed a thousand times but it sure about relationships, you know, when you're dating someone and then you see them with somebody else, it's like, ah, oh, I would never do that, but someone will. And so I just kind of have to be aware. And, and let me retract back from that. I wasn't an entirely good guy in college. I like to think of myself as always having been true blue, but when you're like young and hormonal and looking at your best and people are offering, it was any number of times. Like, I, I don't know that I'm proud of all the things that I did when I should have been, but only, but, but it's also, you're only 17, 18, 19. I don't know that I was with all those people that it really was that big of a thing to, maybe they were doing it too. It, you know what I mean? It, it, I don't know that I totally didn't give into temptation, hopefully never to the point of, I really hurt someone. I, and I, and I think this is true. You know, we've had all the conversations that went with that. It sure seemed like, oh, that's terrible, but, but we'll work with it as opposed to, I didn't, hurt anybody's life forever i didn't crush anybody's dreams there's an argument and i've been doing this with the one talk you know when your kids are young that's when they need to make mistakes that's when they need to learn life lessons not when they're 25 or 30 you know right. and, and then they have resilience they have the yeah. ability to recover and the ability to forgive and be forgiven and, and, and to see how actions consequences and choices and and sometimes things just don't work out or, you know, oh, I, you know, we're not helping our kids if they don't try at field day, but everybody gets a participation ribbon. Well, that doesn't give anybody incentive to try. Uh, there's an argument there. And, and when you got kids going to a job interview, one job interview, and they break down in tears because they didn't get the job. Well, there was something missing. They, they needed to 
not win that tournament. They needed to, they needed to see loss. They needed, as you said, make mistakes and learn from that and grow. Uh, You know, some of the worst people, I think, uh, never learn some of those lessons. I'll tell you, you also learn a lot about yourself. You know what I mean? So here I talk, hey, I read a lot of comic books. I'm all about nobility and heroics and so forth. And then the first time that you're like, you know, if I just don't say something, it'll go easier, even though I know that the truth is something else. And all those little, what's life about? It's maybe making those little concessions that not every, not everything is a battle. Not everything is a field worth dying on. That you And I sure learned. So I, I not only took my regular course load, I took lots of honors courses because I was just so curious and didn't sleep a lot and so forth. But then you start to get that triage idea of, wow, I love this honors course, but I'm spending so much time on getting a one hour A that I'm putting at risk a three, four hour B or C that how stupid, you know, no matter how much you love this, do you really want to obsess over it to the, to the detriment of other things? And so I, I had to learn how to like, I don't know, you know, in high school, I was a valedictorian. I really got A's in everything because things in high school were not beyond anything that I would take on. But having said that, you go to college and all of a sudden, like, there's a whole bunch of people that were all valedictorians just like you. And in fact, for to embrace the stereotype, we had all kinds of Asian kids that if they didn't get straight A's, they kind of like went back home. They didn't get to stay here on their scholarship or in the States. And so all of a sudden I was competing with the German majors in German and the chemistry majors in my chemistry classes as part of my engineering degree and all that kind of stuff. And it really was a wake up call to be like, wow, I, I got to work. I can't, I, I didn't really ever cruise, but the, the difference between I don't know, getting the easy A and really applying yourself to write the perfect paper, to do the perfect chem lab, to do the perfect computer program. I'm a computer science guy. My mind has always worked well with that. And I did it as a hobby and for love. When I got to the rigor of real computer science at U of I, like the first CS course 121, I was blown away with how much I had to up my game. You know what I mean? It was learning new languages. It was learning new constructs. It was um, you only had a certain amount of funny money to spend to solve it instead of, if I stay up late, I'll figure it out. No, you had to be efficient instead of like right. dedicated. Yeah. And I, boy, did I have to learn about myself yeah. <laughs> and what and, I had to and, do to, to do well in that new situation. And arguably, the, and I know it's some culture things and pushing and all that, and some kids are like that, but arguably the ones who stressed out that much and were so dedicated that they didn't live a life, where does it end? I can't imagine they got done with college and got a job and they're like, well, now I can take it easy. No, it was the same thing. Well, I've got to work 13, 14 hour days, but you know, when they're 45, 50, what have they accomplished? They helped some company succeed, but they're still in the lab stressing. Where's the life? A great way to put it. You know what I mean? That you have to like, what's, what's the trade-off of how much time you're putting into something and who's really getting the reward. And that, you know, if it's your grades, that's a good thing. I, one of the other things I got from university of Illinois were, any number of people found it very easy to be distracted by things that weren't school so that all of a sudden cable TV was available and ESPN was on and sports, sports, sports. We had a guy that actually had to like take one or even two semesters off from U of I and go to the local community college to get his grades back up because he so much watched the indoor soccer draft, anything that was on ESPN. And, and I, I, I know I, I did, I've done a course on Plato. Plato was the educational computer system at U of I. And I saw any number of people that besides the educational aspects, they loved playing the games. Right. The first evidence of like in, internet um, addiction where you're playing every single night and you actually got false IDs. So you could do that because U of I was smart and said, hey, don't wreck your career or your, your academic career over this. And yet 
I saw people kind of crash and burn and they're like 19, you're fucking your life up at 19. And yet, boy, the addictive qualities of those things, we've talked about this, they're perfectly designed to give you intermittent rewards and slight advantages that accumulate over time. And everything, there's like one more game, one more minute, I, I just can't turn away. Wow. You know, when you see people, I, I laugh about this, they had like the phosphorescent tan, you know, when you're going into a place that has a lot of VCRs and plasma panels and you're never getting daylight, after a while you have this kind of odd sallow look, a little zombie-ish. And people did. They they get out during the day and they emerged at night. Oh, well. I Luckily, as much as I had an opportunity for that, I also was able to master myself to like say, I'm gonna, I'm, I did once a week play overnight. And like, I don't know if I could do that now, you know, you get to where you, if you do that the next day, you're kind of cashed out back then I could do that and then go to classes. And yet I didn't do the five night a week, the seven night a week. Right. I know lots of people. Because there's no way to sustain that, you know, you get an idea of what you're capable of and like, what's your, what's your Achilles heel? This game is too good. I need to give it to myself as a treat instead of like do the work and then play this instead of play this instead of, (laughs) you know what I mean? I I wish I was perfect about that. I know there's times when I was like, you come to after a four hour gaming session and you're like, Oh, I didn't mean to do that. Damn it. (laughs) It really is not addictive. (laughs) So speaking of college, uh, how's the college course going? The teaching at Baldwin Wallace. Oh, really nice. Um, so, and it's got, it ties into the, so I'm uh, teaching a six week course at Baldwin Wallace for the Institute of Learning and Retirement. So it's, it's adults as opposed to kids, but, so um, it's just a, a fun class. There's no credits or anything involved. That's exactly right. You know, it, it, it is uh, enrichment as compared to education. Um, I It's not a big class. I have like 10 people in the room, but I'm going through six different, you know, like I'm doing a, the kind book history and I'm doing things on archetypes and on geography and on movies. And so I have my, my session set up. I was intending, I did my first session was a ridiculously compressed history of comic books from like 30 to 70 and then i was going to do 80 to date well when i was on vacation and was intending on uh, uh finishing that course off every hotel i was in it was much worse than my wonderful fiber to the house atmosphere at home so i just i just couldn't stand the frustration of waiting for pictures to load videos to load that kind of stuff i couldn't get it done but luckily i have multiple other sessions in the can at, having done them at previous comic cons or mensa meetings or whatever else it might be so i did one on geography and actually that was it's very cool because not only do they have things in comic books but when you mention atlantis or uh you know famous things from greco-roman mythology of various mythologies from science fiction a lot of people in the room weren't only having to be a comic book reader to get it they understand that yes there's the hollow earth theory and there are indeed adventures that take place by going in at the pole right. <laughs> the poles and you know so it would i'm I'm really happy and lucky. My classes, I, I don't hold questions to the end. I want it to be interactive. And we have sometimes good chats, and then we digress, and I get back because I always have my outline running. <laughs> really? And, and, it's, and it's just, I don't know. So far, I've had very few people, like, go to their phone, very few people nod off. It's, it's been a very nice interactive class, some great questions, and some people that they read a lot when they were young. So it's a wonderful like nostalgia and you can see sparks going off and they, I remember that. And you know what I mean? So I'm having a great, it's, it's only an hour, you know, maybe I, I think I'm, I should go 80 minutes. I go uh, an hour 20 each Thursday morning and, and it zooms by while I'm doing it. I always have to, I'm more, I'm not trying to pad anything. I'm more like the last few slides are always rushed. It's like, Oh, we got a lot to get through before it's like, <laughs> so I, 
I love it. I'm a pretty good speaker, and I, I really seem to have good command of my information. And, and, and no matter what question I've been asked, I've been able to um, give an answer or say, well, what's a great, that's a great question. Here's the things about it, but I don't know if I have a perfect answer. So already I think the class likes me and knows that I have a lot to offer. And so they're, they're giving me their attention. And in this era of, you know, nanosecond level attention where everybody wants to be continually, not just a guy talking, but bombarded, my, me and my slides and my stories so far seem to be enough. And maybe because they're also older people there, I'm not trying to deal with 15 year olds, which, which really have been, have grown up in always check your phone, always check your phone. I'm not having to deal with that yet. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so I'm loving it. I'm, I'm loving all the accumulated knowledge that I've got, I'm getting a chance to share. And that is in itself satisfying. It shouldn't just be in here. It should be out to the world. You know right. what I mean? So yeah, those type of classes are harder to come by and do now. Cause I remember in the nineties, I did a lot. I actually taught classes, uh, group piano classes. And then I also taught, uh, different uh, database classes using databases and basic commands and all that. Jazz. Yeah. Um, and, and neither of them were for credit or anything like that, but they seem a lot harder to find and get, uh, you know, community rec centers don't run classes anymore. A lot yeah. of colleges drop their continuing ed or extra classes. So right. it's liquid cool. as a, as a suburb really still does have a very nice roster of all kinds of things, computer things, arts and crafts, things, home economics, uh, uh, doing accounting, all those kinds of things. So I think that's one of the, the wonderful things about Lakewood is that it has that vitality that they really try to have that continuing education. Lakewood just got uh, voted the top suburb around Cleveland in like Cleveland scene magazines, best of 2021. And I think that's part of it is that it's still got vitality all through the, the layers of um, ages and stuff like that. Not just oh, yeah, school's only for kids or whatever else it might be. So right, right. actually you went on a cool conference that is very much it, to your love and, and lots of learning down in Tennessee. Is that yes, correct? Nashville, okay. uh, right outside of Nashville. Okay. Um, so first of all, I, ha I'm not a big beer drinker, but I found the best beer I've ever had. And I will get some every time I go down there. So oh my, all I, right. <laughs> I don't know what it was, something about the flavor. It was iron city, uh, down in Nashville. Uh, I just I said not from Pittsburgh. That from, yeah, from, yeah. Oh, <laughs> throwing me okay. off. Because Birmingham um, is the only place I would have said could also be Iron City. You know what I mean? Right. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I didn't understand, but it was so good. I bought two big growlers to come home. Uh, right. and we're going to New Orleans soon, and we're passing through Nashville. So, so that'll like, be a reason to stop. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll stop, and I'll grab some more. Uh, it was really good. But the conference was a writers' conference. Um, by my friends Jay Thorne, Zach Bohannon. It almost didn't go on because it was postponed from last year. From and, COVID you know, concerns and things like that. Yeah, it was really uh, – it was one of those uh, with lots of speakers and you sit in the audience and uh, listen type of conferences. Okay. Um, and there was supposed to be like close to 150 people uh, and then COVID hit. And so there was only about 30 of us there, but they streamed it and the other 100 or so were listening streaming. Semi-participatory. Okay, yeah, that's yeah, good. They, they okay. sent questions in and stuff, so it was very cool. Um, which is the modern norm, almost. Uh, you know, I, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities for people that do video to set up good streaming for conferences and things, uh, okay. and even 
when the ones like the pulp fest, for example, I know there's talks yes. there, you know, that's, Oh, let's go to the pulp fest. But I could see things like that opening up to where, you know, you could get a ticket for $10 to watch all the, vi- the streaming uh, things go on. If you live in California and can't come in, I, I see that as almost being expected. So exactly. there's something coming there, but uh, it was probably one of the best conferences I've been to. Uh, I've been to a lot of the paranormal ones with my son when he has talked and there's always a speaker or two you don't want to listen to. And a couple you check out and you're like, Oh, this is boring. And one or two good ones. This every life. I sit in the middle in the back. So in case I have to like sneak out and go to another session, I'm not disruptive from the front row. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, But this one, every session was wonderful. The whole room was just on fire. It was great. Uh, My special uh, fun time was JD Barker was there, which I told you about yes. uh, for everybody listening. He's a horror writer. He wrote the prequel to Dracula with Dacre Stoker. Who's the great grand nephew of Bram Stoker. Of Bram Stoker. Yes. Yeah, so very cool. Um, I had breakfast with him uh, two days in a row. So, I mean, you know, where else can you sit? And uh, he, JD has written two books or three books with uh, James Patterson. So he's been on the the New York and USA best time sellers list and yes, yes. you know sold millions of books and I, I'm sitting having breakfast with him two days in a row exactly. and just that wonderful conversation that is not only a presentation it's this you get to chat with them you get yeah. to know each other and I know you, he's the guy that has been working with you coaching yes. you on writing and so forth so I don't know if you've met him face to face before no. but so what an opportunity yeah. to be like finally the reality of yeah. meet space face to face. Absolutely. Right. And you know, everything was really cool about it. It was fun. Didn't get really any time in the city. Uh kind of got down there and uh had the conference and right. pretty took much took root in the hotel, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh didn't do so much. Uh, we've got New Orleans coming up. It's another it's a writer weekend event built world building weekend, totally different style of event. But okay. we're going to be down there a little early and stay an extra couple of days for Halloween. Halloween celebrations in New Orleans. Oh, my. That, that, you know, of all the places, I think Burlington, Vermont, with its parade, there's certain cities that are known for taking Halloween on in a big way. And Nolans, that, of course, because of yeah. the costumery, the voodoo aspect, voodoo. You know, that'll be a very cool place to yep. be. All yep. right. well, I'll have to take pictures. We'll have a... Yeah. Nice discussion on all the Halloween stuff because I've been there before and I know like every shop it's a cult and vampires. And of course, you know, they're, they're not saying we're really digging up vampire coffins and stuff. It's very right. pop culture ish, <laughs> but it's fun. Uh, not very to mention cool. they have Bubba Gump shrimp company uh, restaurants right. that you can, man, we had great eating when I was down there a couple of times and one for a tech conference, one for a Mensa conference, every meal we had out was like, this is like the best gumbo I've ever had ever. And it's in every place along here, the best po' boy, the best, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. Uh, I can't <laughs> wait. It'll be so, <laughs> oh man, the food's going to kill me. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so, but, oh. but let me hear, let me, one more thing with that. And I think uh, you'll appreciate. So I've been working on my, middle grade fiction novels, fantasy. Uh, I'm doing study guides and teacher things for that. And I've been working on this talk on preparing kids for the future of work. Uh, and I, I haven't got that connection between the two. They, they seem like two separate sides, you know, mm-hmm. which has okay. not, I needed a final puzzle piece okay. um, to connect them. Uh, and if I want to go to schools and do like a visit, 
I don't want to just walk in, you know, to these fifth graders going, hi, I write a book. Let me tell you all about me. And, you know, no, right. the kids don't care unless you're Rick Rorden or JK Rowling. They don't care. Right. And, or maybe Arl Stein. Um, <laughs> so I've been wanting something a little different uh, with that. And it clicked while I was in Nashville and I'm full steam ahead working on it. So okay. I'm going to work on a book, a talk, things with kids to connect the two to writing stories for video games. Interesting. Okay. Because they need the backstory to make yes. the whole world hang together to make and, it make sense. And not just okay. the backstory, but the, the newer games that are a whole interactive story, you know, okay. Skyrim is even more so than that. It's an open world interactive story. Right. Right. So good writers are needed. And that's been my thing. I want to teach kids writing. Well, now I'm going to connect the two. So I can hold a workshop, for example, Space Invaders. We're going to work on story. Story has these parts, beginning, middle, end. You have to have a conflict. You have a resolution. Write a good story. What's the story of these aliens invading Earth and our force going to protect them? What story do you come up with? And then, okay, pull out G-Develop or some other game-making app. We're going to walk through game making concepts and creating the game that you wrote the story about. So connecting the two um, yeah. and I'm like, nailed it. That's, that's what I'm going to do. So that sounds great. And honestly, for like a, another phase to your career, you know that there are places that they really want people just like you. They might have folks that are great at character development, but it's the graphics and the abilities of them, not necessarily their backstory and, and people that are, that are creating the world. They fantastic at creating castles and moors and whatever else it might be. But why, why is that land blighted? What happened in that battle that had, you know what I mean? It's that yeah. your ability to tie it all together, that could be a very interesting, like you could offer yourself as that hired gun or be part of a development team that's creating a whole world. That's a very good way to contribute it with your skills and your background I, I and, your, and your love and joy, you know? It's, so it's yeah. Both things. Yeah. And I already found a guy that, uh, has worked on some big names. He worked on Skyrim. He worked on uh, Star Wars thirteen thirteen, which got canceled, uh, Ooh, and some okay. other big games yeah. uh, as a writer. And I just found him, sent him an email, and he's going to be on my podcast. So I've already like, okay, what questions can I pick his brain about? You know, yeah, yeah. And and then I figure if I do write a book, I, you know, I might get him to do a foreword or something on it. Exactly. So uh, you know, moving moving on to this a lot. I love yeah. the idea. That's not, you know, one of the things that I've, I've often had in my talks is it's not just verbal, 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 all the information. There's always a little, so what have we learned slide at the end? And I really try to summarize in a way that here's why this is still important. Here's why it's what happened back then is cool and pertinent today, uh, pertinent. Um, and often uh, uh, what I've also now tried to always include is, and so what do we do going forward? You know, you really should have a call to action, not just thanks for all the information and bye. So I often will say, you know, if you're looking for, so I, I just talked about Doc Savage, one of my heroes growing up, written in the, the pulp era, the 30s and 40s. And so, you know, here I am reading them in the 60s and 70s. And yes, in some ways they were corny, but in some ways, more ways, they were fascinating. The writer was really good at capturing that sense of time and place. And when you're going back, kind of like steampunk takes you back to the Victorian era, he took you back to Here's um, post-depression in the United States. Science is pulling off miraculous things. We're finding out, like, how do, how do antibiotics work? How does blacklight work? What does a jet do? And to be in that era of the explosion of science and Doc being a science guy, 
um, kind of pushing on the edge of it. It was just enough science fiction-y. The world was still not fully mapped out. So all kinds of adventures could be, oh, here's another lost civilization. Here's something going on under the ocean because we haven't fully explored it. And so that joy of why should you read comic books? Because speculative fiction has always been great about creating that sense of time and place. And if you want to not just say what's going on in the world now, but kind of how did we get here and where are we going? It's a perfect thing to spur your imagination and your appreciation for those kinds of things. So go to the library. The fact that in this world of digitization and collecting that you can still it used to be that you had to, like, if I was going to read Fantastic Four, I had to start collecting from number one in 1961 on and have gaps and all that. Nowadays, there's so much stuff that's available in the Masterpiece and Collected Editions and current things that are being collected within a year of the, the, the story arc finishing. And the wealth of that being available is just a delight. And the more that you start to see how clever they were with a lot of that stuff hanging together, that it wasn't just individual titles, but whole universes it mattered that when atlantis attacked well there's sea coast everywhere <laughs> you know what i mean I, I just i hope that some of what i'm doing is spurring people to not only say yeah those were fun i like richie rich i'm done with that now that it's more wow it's literature there's really cool things that have been going on here for a long time and the fact that i can say you know well underlying the x-men has always been it's about bigotry it's about you know, the, the fear of the other and, and how do we deal with people that are unlike us? And you know what? We're all unlike us. All of us have right. different abilities and stuff. And so are we going to be tolerant or are we going to be jerks? <laughs> and I don't know. I've had all kinds of really nice, like, strokings of the chin and nodding <laughs> when they're saying that really was a theme. It wasn't just Biff Bam Pow. There have always been these things about, you know, the, the main themes that go on in comic books. So very cool. Yeah. And, and you look at something like The Boys uh, on Amazon, which is based, taken from a comic book. It wasn't a novel. It wasn't a movie. That's it, right. It started as a comic book. And you can say comic book, but I think that's almost loaded. People think of Richie Rich and Archie and, oh, kids things. Right. You know, I think a lot of people are using graphic novel now or, you know, um, uh, whatever, graphic storytelling right. and you know, sequential whatever. storytelling and stuff like yeah. that That's right. and, yeah. and i know uh, there's a big push i know at the conference there's a big talk about serial fiction again and you'd mentioned doc savage right. know, that was the era of serial fiction you know even um a christmas carol from dickens was serialized in the newspaper uh That's exactly and, right. and and there were it was just almost all of the uh conan stuff was serialized and um um, Lovecraft was serialized. They put out a bit here, a bit there, and stuff. Right. Well, now short stories, occasionally the novel or the novella, exactly that. Yeah. yeah. And, and now it's coming back, and things like manga. Manga is really a serial fiction storytelling medium with pictures, and we've got uh, Amazon started this thing called Vela, which is for serial fiction. People are getting back into the whole serial fiction, and. Okay. And all comic books are is serial fiction that hasn't gone away, <laughs> you know, but people are discovering now. That's a great, honestly, I have for a long time, you know, like people talk about, hey, you know, Harry Potter, I read all seven books. Good for you. There's 181 Doc Savages. There's like 625 Shadows. Oh, my but God. The output that was done and the, the, stat, the ongoing, like you can't help but comment on the issues of the day, the various different cities that you visit. You get such an incredible, and, and of course, all the characters and their story arcs, and that they do indeed go through triumph and tragedy together. And so, kind of like whatever makes us like um, 
uh, soap operas and stuff like that. It's always been available in fiction if you look for it. You know what I mean? There wasn't only one uh, Professor Challenger book from The Lost World. There was actually a series of them, but one sold the best. And so people think only that it, it was serialized in the way you're saying that Dickens was or that a very, you know, like Edgar Allan Poe came out as short stories, you know, in magazines and then was collected into books. At least some of them were. And so it's, it's uh, I think that that idea of, you know, you have to keep it in your mind to be able to appreciate the next one. You have to be able to there's depth to it beyond a single novel. And I've always loved that. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of serial fiction in virtually everything. You know, I've always loved my, my pulp heroes and my science fiction adventures. When you read the known space books, that there's, there's different worlds, but they all tie together in terms of there's actually a chronology and they give you a nice chart. When you read all the Terry Pratchett books of Discworld, man, it's, it's very cool how he's been able to juggle and write things kind of out of time sequence but make it all work together and they actually have big charts of if you want to read them in published order here it is if you want to read them in order in terms of chronology here it is if you want to dedicate to these are the guards books these are the witches books these are it's it's people love these things and actually do the analysis the first time that someone reads the books and creates a map for the author of the world he's been creating think of the love in that think of the encyclopedic knowledge that goes into you know, yeah, this has always made sense. You didn't realize that in order to go through this pass, there had to be a mountain range there, and that would indeed divide. And, you know, the, the kingdoms, I love it. And, and sometimes they start with that. You know what I mean? They actually have that sense of world, and they write to the world. But other times, I know that they just, like Robert E. Howard, he kind of winged it while he was doing the Conan books. But then you see the map of Aquilonia and, and all yeah. the different Kush and it all is kind of like proto-Europe bordering on Africa, <laughs> but with some liberties taken. I, I just Spoken love Middle Earth. A Middle Earth, it, absolutely. You know, so it, um, um, I, so Bella is a thing that Am- Amazon has now where it actually tracks more serial fiction. So, you know, that's all it I is. in my mind, another one of those lost opportunities. I had, I've been working on Knits next in the series right, right. App for a long time. And I just didn't publish it and didn't get it out there because it. I know, my vision was it wasn't only about me doing it. It was, hey, everybody who likes serial fiction, start filling in the data for me. I'll give you this wonderful series of templates and all that kind of stuff so that you really can say, here's all these Shadows and Doc Savages and Harry Potters right. and James Bonds and whatever. But that there's also then other book series. Dean Koontz often has interconnections between his books, even though the characters and things are very different. Stephen King has. They all take place in Maine in various different key cities. So there's something cool to be able to say, um, here's when this guy makes a reference to, what is it, the the Needful Things shop and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, right. Here's in these four books. J.D. You know Parker I mean? had the Needful Things shop and the proprietor in his first book, and King gave him permission to use it. See, how cool is that? Yeah. Isn't that, I mean... <laughs> and it's called uh, Amazon Fella, and it's new modern serial fiction uh i know several authors writing on it so about once a week they get a new episode out and they're all short i think the limit is like five thousand words you can't go over that for an episode right. and they're you know very serial that we, we talked a lot about the structure of serial fiction how it's different you can't just take chapters from a novel that's not what it's you have like. to kind of have a little bit of a cliffhanger a little bit yeah. of conclusion you have to and if anything i mean in my mind i've been around for 60 years Anything that's been done serial fiction nowadays seems to have been almost like as an experiment, right? King did it with the Green Mile, and it was yeah. 
a big, ooh, let's go all watch what he's doing. And like, wow, how can he sustain that? Like I was saying, they had pulp authors that were writing a book every month, if not every two weeks, 80 to 100,000 words. How do you make your living when you're getting paid a penny a word? Right. Turn out yeah, novels. Not you know what I mean? Exactly. Let's so, see, that's one big word, but I could break it apart into five smaller words. <laughs> and there, I guess there is that too. Maybe yeah. that's why I came across very Hemingway terse because they were getting paid for a word. <laughs> right. <two> words just... <laughs> so, so here's a, here's one of my prizes in my collection. Uh, you know, Stephen King, when he started the gunslinger, it was just some short stories in fantasy and science fiction. Okay. I have three issues that have three of the original gunslinger stories in it how cool so is that, that. You know? not yeah. signed yet i'll work on that <laughs> right right in fact i i have had any number of conversations over the years where people were like man that you know i saw the conan movie you know that's really great and it's like well you know that that comes from books and that those books come from short stories and so we go all the way back to like the 30s and they're like well but there's it seems so modern it's like well you set up a story in a fantasy world and it doesn't have to have you know modern things like trains and guns it really can be if you're sword fighting that kind of so i've had any number of people that really had to kind of get enlightened as to the shadow existed before the alec baldwin movie and if there's any number especially now as we are digging into some of those older sources you know what i mean and sometimes it's not an original character but when you go to see the rocketeer what does it do? It harkens back to those yeah. science heroes of the thirties and stuff like that. Yeah. It recaptures the pulps. I just read, a, 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 um, I went over to Lakewood library for the first time in a while because I had kind of tapped them out. I had read <laughs> everything in their graphic novels. Al, you got to stop. I know. It, it, like, you know I, Cause every time I'm walking out, I'm walking out with like, you know, a, a stack that I'm having to balance like the Mr. Bean sketch. So, <laughs> and, um, so I, I discovered adventure man. It's done by uh, Matt Fraction and, and the, the Dodsons. Yeah, and yeah. Very much in the spirit of the pulps. And I I just, the fact that it is like the pulps, it's fast moving. And it has, you know, the, the villain is probably a little bit like Scooby-Doo, revealed, not, not uh, included early, but not revealed towards the end. And I just, it is no wonder that I love those things because they push my buttons for good story, good characters, keeps moving. You know what I mean? I, I When I'm sitting there reading, it's like, I'm glad that somebody is, doing more of these instead of it being just the the amber that we froze the pulps in from 90 years ago 80 years ago you know it's kind of cool so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so um i wonder i remember when kindle first started amazon took a lot of public domain classic books treasure island hg wells and put them on kindle for free so that you know so when you first got there it wasn't like two books <laughs> there was something there that's right yeah. i wonder if they're going to do something similar with Bella, get some of those old public domain serial fiction stories and release them. Cause I'd love that. That'd be awesome. Yeah. So I, I've heard about, you know, that a lot of that was based on what was called project Gutenberg. Yes. All kinds of books that had fallen into uh, pre-use, you know, public domain were then typed in by um, various different enterprising. I've always loved the counter Monte Cristo and I'll make sure that it's available for everybody to use. And, and maybe it was like monks in a cloister that were like, I'm not allowed to talk, but I can type, <laughs> you know what I mean? Who knows all the sources of this, but that quickly became tens of thousands of books, all kinds of what you were saying, you know, not only old novels, but old scientifica, old, um, various different things that, that, that you want to still be available instead of having to go find it. And it might not even in the library anymore because it kind of got pushed out by new things always coming in. So there's all kinds of quality stuff from whenever you read like a book of the hundred greatest books of all time. Well, you do go back to 
the you know the brothers Karamazov and various different Russian novelists and various different French and various different German, and like you're saying, that being available not only for novels, but man, being if someone somewhere has the Street and Smith, you know, there's various different big publishers of the pulps. If they have access to that and not even having to type it in, like Gutenberg, if I know that Google was doing a whole big thing early in its career to be digitizing everything, right? They had the kind of the auto scanner going and stuff like that. And they actually had some court cases that they had yeah. to with how much of this is making too much of it available and violating copyright. Right, um, right. I know that also this is kind of kind of weird. You know, as much as we're saying, well, that's all out there. We should put it all in. The lawyers from Disney have been really good at saying, you know, even if the story of Pocahontas has been around for a long time, if we make an animation with a particular likeness of Pocahontas, it restarts the clock. And they did that with Pocahontas and the Hunchback of Notre Dame and, the, you know, like Phineas, Phyllis Fogg and Around the World in 80 Days, either movie or animation. And so that's the, the Disney has all kinds of rights to the little mermaid something from hans christian anderson hundreds of years old but ariel is now the little right. mermaid and so and, they're gonna fight you on it and i I, I think honestly <laughs> that those would be hard for them to really win in the end because i know that has come up with sherlock holmes that if you're Absolutely. going back to the source material and you're basing whatever you're doing on source material you're fine even though there's been a million movies and all that and they can't but i think that what the real real world issue is that even if you would win and can say, look, I base mine off a of Hans Christian Andersen's story. It's in the public domain. So I'm allowed to do that. The problem is Disney has a lot of lawyers and, they have and a lot pockets. of money and a lot of time. So to keep throwing they would just keep hammering you, even if they're ultimately going to lose until you give up and then they win anyway. Right. So there's only certain um, big cases that have been decided where that serial, uh, I don't want to use the word terrorism, that harassment of, we know we're going to lose, but if we make it too expensive for you to continue, we do win. And they've actually now had a couple of cases where it was, it was obvious that there was nothing to this case, except you making it kind of like the intermittent wipers thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> we're just going to outlast you. We're going to wear you down. And so a couple of those cases now have been set as precedents where people think they can fight the fight. I, I just read that um, you know, for various different comic books. Steve Ditko, for instance, created Spider-Man along with Stan Lee and various other characters. And the heirs of Steve Ditko, unfortunately not Steve, because he's now passed, they're fighting for, you know, this really should revert to us, just like Captain America should revert to Jack Kirby and Joe Simon and various other, where it's very clear who the creators of various different characters that are now making billion-dollar movies. It'd be not just if you will, up to the company's beneficence to give people some money, but to their legal rights to, if anybody has rights to the exploitation of this character, it's, it's, you know, Bill Finger and Bob Kane for Batman. Right, right, we exactly. Know, you know, it's William Molson, Molson, Molson Marston for Wonder Woman. And I hope that some of those cases proceed because honestly, when you're making a billion dollars, and someone wants a hundred million of that, that seems like a lot of money, but you got the other 900 million. Right. And, <laughs> and I don't, I don't know the truth behind all of this, uh, but I've heard that the original creators of some of the MCU characters, okay. uh, they got a $5,000 check and was told go away and that's it. They, they, you know, they've used Iron Man in how many movies and made how much money because of that. And the original right. creator got 5,000 bucks. Which, I've, I've read similar things, and it really is, especially for those kind of characters where, like, it's, it's. I think it's Don Heck 
and Stan Lee did Iron Man, and Dan Abnett did the Guardians of the Galaxy, and 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 Andy Lanning, and so that's the kind of thing where I guess they threw them aside, and maybe compared to getting nothing, you know, gameplay would say take whatever you're getting because otherwise it's zero. But the the justice of it yeah. would be that this thing wouldn't exist for you to exploit unless their brilliant minds, their creativity created this thing for you. And so you don't have to go halfies, but you have to go something that says, I don't know, maybe you do have to go halfies. Why should you start with my thinking that they shouldn't get it all? It's it really, you know what I, I mean? I know, uh, <laughs> we, we met uh, Stephen Bissett in Maine. Uh, he was oh, one boy. of the big guys with uh, Swamp Thing. He didn't create him, but he was one of the big ones that worked on yeah, it. Yeah, for popularizing the character, exactly. Yeah. And I, I know he said when uh, the new series came out, he got a check. He didn't know the series was coming. They didn't ask him to consult or anything. He just got a check. And his attitude was like, yeah, I don't care. Uh, you know, whatever it could have been. Not that Swamp Thing has taken over the world or anything. But right. he was just like, you know, even 35 years later, I'm still getting... Yeah, you know, some checks. Visuals, if you will. Yeah. yeah. I, I have a friend that has been a, a soap opera writer for a long time and has won Emmys and stuff like that. And she gets residuals like that. And mm -hmm. even if she's you wouldn't know her name was associated with these shows necessarily, but that part of um ASCAP BMI rights for music and what you know, TV, I'm trying to think who administers that, they have been pretty good about you know, what we don't want is lawsuits. We don't want bad blood. We don't want any kind of thing that's going to stop people from just falling into these wonderful stories. And so there always has been enough money to share. And they found a way to do that. It's unfortunately, comic books is one of the big places where so much of that work by contract was work for hire. And so people have been exploited for a long time. Frank Schuster Miller was one of the first guys to say, you can't do that to Jack Kirby. He created the Marvel Universe. Why is he? I mean, he wasn't living in the hovel. I don't think that there's been some cases where they really were their life was not good and we could better it but in most cases it just was the divvy here is not fair you know what i mean if this person created something that has lasted 80 years as a character that's something to be rewarded to be revered yeah. and, and hopefully we're going to see well, some more, I, i've you know. said this you know it used to be uh they would buy a book and this is a lot of the Stephen king stuff in the 80s they'd buy one of his books and say go away and they'd make a movie and we look at it and says, wow, that really sucked. You know, now we see a lot of times where the writer is like uh, on the, the shooting like set, creative consultant right on site yeah, exactly. and working with the screenwriters. Now I, I, I understand more now that there are just some things from books that don't translate well, or, you know, here's, three chapters that we could take out because it doesn't move the story and we can condense these characters into one. Yeah. I understand that, that I'm not always happy about it, but I think now that they're using the original authors more and understanding we get a better product at the end. I, so I hope that's the case. Yeah. My, my cautionary tale about that is I know there's at least one Dune movie that had Frank Herbert consulting and it wasn't any good. And it was especially in ways that were like Frank, that's you. You wrecked your own good thing. That's it's. It's not pronounced Fremen. It's Freeman. That's yeah, yeah. <laughs> what well, are we'll you see. doing? And we'll giving water the, to the dead, crying on a desert world. What an incredible thing that was! How did you give that short shrift? That should have been a huge build and a huge scene. And you know what I mean. So even though he was there, he didn't seem to get the gist of his own books. I know yeah. that's a terrible thing to say, but so, oh well. <laughs> do you uh, and Colleen at Christmas time ever watch any of the Hallmark? Uh, Christmas show, TV shows. 
I, honestly, probably not because okay. they're kind of networking. We don't do that, but okay. okay. There's a, a lady on there that I call her the Hallmark Christmas lady. Okay. She's redhead. Her name's Alicia Witt. She's like in at least one a year, if not two. Right. And she was the little girl in the Dune movie from the eighties, the little sister. Yeah, I, I am the Kvizat Haranach. You know, he is. The, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. She was spooky when she was eight. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's I my. I remember Kvizat Haranach. Anyway, <laughs> but it's all in there, man. It's <laughs> well, the new one's coming. What in a month and a half or something? So we'll see. Yeah, and really I love important. it. I think they they may. I, I'm giving it some hope because. They're saying Dune, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, great. Another two-hour movie based on a 600-page book. How great, you know. But they're like, no, this is part one. It only goes up to the first third of the book or so. That's right. They're serializing it so they can do full credit to it. And, in fact, it's not just Dune. It's Foundation. There's any number of what they used to call Watchmen kind of unfilmable things. But, actually, they're taking the time with the writerly uh, uh, smarts and the special effects and whatever else it is, I hope to do it justice. Yeah, you know well, I mean? I'm so like, oh, I'll be happy to see that. I do not want to subscribe <laughs> to Apple TV. <laughs> but we, we did, we have been watching Chapel Wait uh, on, okay. uh, from based on Stephen King's short story, Jerusalem's Lot. It okay. has been fantastic. It's, I didn't know about that one. Chapel Wait? Chapel Wait, yeah. Uh, do you okay. ever read the original story in Night Shift, uh, Jerusalem's yeah. Lot? 1850 in the house and the guy's kind of going crazy. It's almost like crafting in a way okay. uh, with the worm, the cult of the worm. Okay. Um, well, that's very this, Lovecraftian. I'm sure yes. that it was an homage on Stephen King's part. Yeah, okay. It's a yeah. uh, very uh, well done. They've redone it. Uh, so like okay. the main character has a family instead of just being single uh, and they, but it's just, it's this rich Gothic horror feel to it it's 1850 and they've done so well with it i've been absolutely loving it so you should go grab your night shift and read jerusalem's lot and then see if you can it's on epics right now but i'm guaranteeing it's going to come somewhere else once the season is over got it thank you i I didn't even know to look for that one so yeah it's a good one we won't get to it today, but as you know, we're segueing into October, yes. and October is Halloween, and it's horror movie Zamundo. So yes. they actually have, like, as you know, a nice conference right here in Ohio that is the best. I know that I've seen all kinds of most scary movies, best horror movies of all time, and that would be something worth delving into. Because yeah. I look at this list, and I've seen, like, half of them. And, wow, I, I kind of want I don't want to watch them all at once, because I don't want to, like, die in my own urine from being scared but i kind of want to like dole, dole them out to me so that i get a really good scare once a week between now and halloween all right you know? well that's got to be our topic first thing next week because i want to hear more about this you said right uh, they're doing like about a... early enough that we can do it not just on yeah. the day before halloween exactly right, right. yeah because um, <laughs> uh we've been my, i told you my friend reese he's watched over 1200 horror movies and kept track of stuff so I, right. I want to hear about this more he's encyclopedic see that's very cool i haven't watched 1200 i probably watched uh 200 when i was right. young i used to watch like i said on our sleepovers with me and Stu, we used to watch all the time the screaming yellow theater and the creature right. features and so i've accumulated all kinds of terrible b movies Demon. oh yeah but <laughs> well, hey uh real quick before we go um Children of the Corn, a Stephen King remake. I just okay. actually watched the 84 version. And okay. until the end, it wasn't too bad. Uh, the 2009, I thought, was much better. But I saw that there was a Children of the Corn m- released last year. Uh, and it turns out it's a prequel uh, where the children are starting to take over the town. But okay. it made a grand total of $1,200 worldwide. 
Oh, man. So nobody wanted to see that bad boy. Or the people who saw it early were like warning everyone off, you know, zero on Rotten Tomatoes. I've never (laughs) nothing ever that low. So, all right, man. So horror movies next week. Uh, There we go. Okay. Talk to you later. Take care, Stephen. Always a pleasure. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Relentless Geekery Podcast. Come back next week and join Alan and Stephen's conversation on Geek Topics of the Week.